reading of God's Word will be in Mark 3, uh, starting at verse 7, which is on page 838 of the Pew Bible. 838, Mark 3, verse 7 through 19. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've died for us and you've given us a record that we hold in our hands now that gives us life and hope and guidance. We think about you choosing your apostles and we thank you for choosing us by your grace. Amen. because that is what we're going to read about, the choosing of the apostles. All right, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Do we have a crazy uh, presidential uh, thing going on right now or what? Wow. Um, yeah, that's all I can say about it. I'll get in trouble if I say much more, so I can't really, can't really say a whole lot. But um, it, is, it is just crazy. I do want to say something that's planned. And what I'm saying is I can't say anything that's unplanned or I'll get in trouble here. But I do have some things uh, to say planned. It's interesting to note that both of our presidential candidates attended... Uh, Ivy League uh, institutions. Hillary Clinton went to uh, Yale Law School, and Donald Trump went to University of Pennsylvania for his undergraduate work. And 
it might be reasonable to conclude that many, many of our presidents went to those kinds of schools, and in fact, some of them uh, did. Uh, from Harvard, we have John Adams and John Quincy Adams, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and JFK. From Yale, we have Howard, uh, William Howard Taft, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush. So it would be reasonable to conclude that many of our presidents historically attended these prestigious and elite universities. But I was surprised this week, as I was, uh, for various reasons, looking at this, uh, learned that a dozen of our presidents not only didn't attend an elite university, but didn't go to college at all, or didn't graduate. They went, but didn't graduate, and these are no slouches uh, up here. Uh, These are not lightweights, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Harry Truman most recently did not graduate from college. Interesting. Yeah, you're finding this, this, I I didn't realize, I didn't know this till this week, Uh, learned this, and and I have a, a purpose to be talking about this. We have a misconception about what it takes historically, I have had at least a misconception of what it takes historically to become the President of the United States. And I want to suggest that many of us also have a misconception about what it takes to be an effective disciple, to be in the school of Jesus, as it were, and to impact the kingdom of God and to impact human beings. I want to suggest, at least I do, and I think many of us have a misconception that we have to maybe have had some kind of of super training to really be equipped to, to advance God's kingdom, to really make a difference. Or we have to have some kind of extraordinary gifting. And we have this tendency, or at least I do, to look at others and think, well, he has that gift or she has that gift or they have that training, but I'm just kind of going to kind of sit here and go through the motions. This is a misconception that today's sermon, in part, I want to help to remove. Uh, are you with me? Some of you brave enough to say you think that way. Other, people's are, other people are going to do this. So we're going to see this in the selecting of the apostles. We're going to see how, how God uses just really ordinary people to do amazing things. We'll get to that paragraph in just a minute. But let's begin in chapter 3 and verse 7. So hopefully you still have your Bibles open. We're in Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to begin looking at verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, verse 8, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. What we have, church, as we are journeying through the Gospel of Mark is this increasing magnetism of Jesus. Mark is showing us the crowds are increasing chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. And here they're they're so overwhelming, we're going to see in a moment that that he can't even stand in a pulpit and speak or in in a home and, and speak. He has to come up with some unusual way to address the crowd because they're pressing on him so much. But we see in verse 8 that it has spread beyond Capernaum uh, to these faraway lands. And the people are coming and they are crowding. 
One commentator writes this, in spite of hardening opposition from various local Jewish authorities, Jesus continues to attract ever larger crowds and people from farther and farther away now flock to him. Now, if we can just go back briefly in your minds, those of you that were here a few weeks ago, we talked about one of Mark's primary purposes in his gospel is to overcome the shame and the scandal of the cross. Some of you remember that sermon. And so part of the reason that he's underscoring and underlining this magnetism in all of these people that are coming is for the reader who didn't experience this and to say, how in the world can the Son of God, the Messiah, have died on the cross? This is part of his purpose underscoring, underlining this. Let's continue, uh, continue on there in verse, uh, where was I, in verse 9 and verse 10. Uh, verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his, his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Here it is, he, he, he can't speak uh, in a pulpit, he can't speak in the, in the house or in the uh, house in Capernaum at Peter mother, Peter's mother-in-law's home or in the synagogue. He needs a boat here to, so that this crowd would not overwhelm him so that he can speak. He, uh, looking on in verse 10, for he, the reason, one of the reasons for this is in verse 10, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. The word is out. Not only was, it, was, was he magnetic in his authority and the way that he taught, but primarily what's bringing these huge crowds is there are stories and testimonies of people who, who have been healed, paralytics and lepers and all of the things that we have been looking at. Another commentator writes this. He says, The popularity of Jesus grows especially on account of his healings and casting out demons. His chief goal, however, is to teach about and to call people to the kingdom of God. We saw this just a few weeks ago in chapter 1, where Jesus said this, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. At this phase in his ministry, Jesus' purpose is to spread out around all of these villages proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel, identifying himself as the Son of God. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. But as he does this, he is just overwhelmed with the crowds that are coming. Let's move on now to this next paragraph. And most of our sermon today is going to be coming out of this next verse or two. So verse 13 says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and he came to, and they came to him. We have here the calling of the 12 uh, apostles, the 12 disciples, the foundation of the church. One of the other gospel writers tells us that he had spent the night in prayer. Mark doesn't tell us that, but he went up on this mountainside and the night before he calls these 12, he had, he had spent the night alone in prayer. Notice that he calls those he wanted. He calls those he wanted. And I have basic, uh, four basic points this morning about Jesus' school of discipleship. And, and my first point this morning is that admission is ultimately by divine invitation. Admission is ultimately by divine invitation. This is true for the apostles in selecting them, but it's also true for everyone who comes to faith in Jesus. The call of God is, is ultimate. 
in salvation and in conversion. We see this uh, here in the calling of the apostles. We see this in one of the more difficult, one of the more challenging passages in the Bible, Romans chapter 9, which we could summarize that chapter perhaps with verse 16. It says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And the context here is not the calling of the apostles, but of, of those who come to faith, those who, are, those who are His church, who are His people, who are His sheep. And ultimately, it does not depend on a man or a woman's will or on, or on whether that will embraces the Lord or whether that will runs from the Lord. It isn't ultimately that. It is ultimately God showing His mercy. So this we can quickly get into controversy talking about this, but we have to simply uh, affirm what the Scripture teaches. Jesus calls these exact 12, and they come. And in Romans 9, one of the takeaways there is that God is ultimately sovereign and Lord over the calling of His church, His people. This is not to exclude the reality of the freedom and responsibility that human beings have. The Scripture teaches both of these things, that we are that that God is ultimately sovereign and that we are responsible and free. You and I know from our own life experiences that we're not puppets. We're not computer programs. We are are free. And this is a mysterious thing, and and, and theologians and philosophers have been discussing this for for centuries, and I don't pretend to have it all figured out. I don't think we can get it all figured out, but I think there are some basic things about being in the school of Christ, as it were, being in in the family of God, that we can see, and one of them is, is that admission is ultimately by divine invitation. Other passages show the freedom of human beings. Let's take a look at one of those. Mark chapter 10, if we jump forward to chapter 10, you're familiar with this story. Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I like that sentence. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I put this story up here to kind of bring some balance to what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that ultimately God is sovereign in calling us to him. But we see the freedom of human beings, not only by our own experience. We know that intuitively, you and I do, but we see it in scriptures like this. This man loves his money. The functional God in his life is money. And Jesus knows that. And this man has the freedom. It is difficult to explain, but he has the freedom to will and, f- and follow after or to reject what Jesus is saying. And he's choosing to reject. This is why he went away sad. So to bring some theological summary to these tensions we see in Scripture of passages like Romans 9 and many passages like this that show the freedom and responsibility of human beings. Uh, 
we, we look to this. This is a, a good summary, I believe, from D.A. Carson. He writes, Christians are not fatalists. We're not, we're not uh, programmed. We're not robots. The central line of Christian tradition neither sacrifices the utter sovereignty of God nor reduces the responsibility of his image bearers. That's us. In philosophical theology, this position is sometimes called compatibilism. It simply means that God's unconditioned sovereignty, that's what we, we see that in the selecting of these apostles, as unconditioned sovereignty and the responsibility of human beings, we just saw that in, in this rich young ruler, are mutually compatible. It, that is the Bible, does, or the, neither the Bible nor this philosophical position called compatibilism, neither claim to show how they are compatible. The Bible doesn't explain exactly how these things go together, but they do. They go together. God's sovereignty and human responsibility and freedom. And I want, uh, I, I'm, I'm visiting this again. This is kind of a side note from where we're going in the sermon, but I'm visiting this again because this can cause so much controversy and division. And I think if we just stay with the, the Word of God and perhaps avoid labels and a variety of things that cause controversy, the Lord can give us peace on, on these issues. So, so, some of you have, have you spent some, some uh, hours debating and discussing the, this very issue? This is very helpful, I think, to acknowledge both of these things are in the Scriptures. And they are not unreasonable, but when we are talking about compatibilism is not unreasonable, but when we're talking about divine uh, things, when we are talking about God and His purposes, we're talking about the infinite. And so we enter into areas that are beyond reason. Not unreasonable, but reason is not sufficient for us to fully wrap our minds of course, around God and even around certain aspects of theology. And this is one of them. So at the end of, uh, back to our text here, of Jesus selecting these apostles, of Jesus uh, graciously bringing many of us into the fold, uh, rescuing us from, from our paths that we are on, the, the response is simply worship and thanksgiving, not God, this isn't fair. I don't fully understand this. We just simply thank him and worship him and spread this good news so that others as well would come into the fold. So we're talking today about Jesus' school of discipleship, and I'm saying that admission is ultimately by divine invitation. We see this in him calling the apostles, and we see that all 12 of them respond, and they came to him in verse 13. Let's move on to verse 14. It says, he appointed 12 designating them apostles. So a second point this morning is that the class size is small. He chose 12. Jesus chose to spend the bulk of His earthly ministry with 12 people. We, we are designed to live in community. We are designed to be in intimate relationships with one another, to apply the Gospel to each other's lives. And Jesus is modeling that here at the beginning of Mark's Gospel by selecting 12 and focusing by and large on these 12. He preaches to large audiences, yes. He feeds the 5,000. But he is spending day and night discipling, modeling, living with these 12. The class size is small. One commentator uh, says this. 
He says, when we preach the gospel to one another in close-knit community, there is spiritual growth that challenges, that changes us individually and as a whole. We can also begin to position ourselves with an outward focus and encourage gospel transformation in communities outside the church walls. So this is part of of the heart of of what we want to increasingly become as a church here at Cornerstone is a place where the gospel is preached to one another in close-knit community, in small groups of like 10 or 12 or whatever, some small group number of people, a level of intimacy that we're not able to get at in a large gathering like this, even a small church large gathering like this on Sunday morning. When he says... Uh, When Ed Stetzer says, when we preach the gospel to one another, he's not saying that we need to lead one another to Christ every week in our small groups. Do you get that? Are you with me today, church? What what he's, uh, let me say that one more time. Is that all right? Are you with me, church? What he is saying is that we need to preach gospel themes to each other each week. That we need to be in relationships with one another. So that when we we looked at depression just a few weeks ago, so that when you or I are going through a season of life where we are depressed or discouraged, others that we know well are preaching that theme of hope, of resurrection, this gospel theme of hope and resurrection and into our lives in special and specific and intimate ways. We preach the gospel to one another when we see someone in our small group who, who needs to extend forgiveness to that person in their life. And we know that and we want to come alongside them and help them to extend forgiveness. This is how we preach the gospel to one another. The class size is small. In Jesus' group, there are 12 of them that he's called. And so we have an emphasis here on on modeling this in ministry, that we do life together in small groups. I had the the privilege uh, a week ago Thursday of, of visiting one of our small groups and I didn't talk to people and get permission, so I won't share details. But let me just say that I, I was so blessed, uh, a group that I hadn't visited in a long time, going in there and seeing the gospel being preached. They may not have used that language, but, but them loving each other and shepherding one another and, and being deeply involved in each other's lives and encouraging one another and praying one another. You know, I get in my car uh, a week ago Thursday afterward, and I'm just like like almost, almost in tears of joy of seeing what God's doing in, in our small groups as, as the gospel is being applied and lived out. I'm, just, I'm very happy, and, and I want to encourage you, I, I, those of you that, are, that don't have brothers and sisters in Christ that you're confiding in, who know what you're going through, that are praying for you, I want to encourage you to find that. There's different places you can find it, but I would encourage you to find it in our small groups in our men's and women's Bible studies. Back to our passage here, him choosing this 12. One commentator writes this. He says, It was a strange group of men our Lord chose to be his disciples. Four of them were fishermen. One a hated tax collector. Another a member of a radical and violent political party. Of six of them, we know practically nothing. All were laymen. There was not a preacher or an expert in the scriptures in the lot. Yet it was with these men that Jesus established his church and disseminated his good news to the end of the earth. 
I, I like that sentence. It was a strange group of men our Lord Jesus chose to be his disciples. It is, isn't it? He chose fishermen. He didn't choose graduates from Ivy League schools. He didn't choose those who had memorized the Scriptures and had sat under the greatest rabbis. He didn't choose them. He didn't choose people that had this gifting just off the chart. Oh, I'm going to choose this guy because he's going to attract bigger crowds. We're going to get him. He chose really ordinary people People like you, people like me, a strange group of men. I mean, I'm saying we're strange here by implication. (laughs) We are. We're all messed up. Hopefully we're progressing in our messed upness and leaving that behind more and more, but we we are all strange. I want this to, to, to land on you today so that we don't have misconceptions that somehow somebody else out there is going to do this. Jesus chose mostly fishermen to begin the church of Jesus Christ. It began with 12. Today, 3.4 billion people profess to be Christians. A third of the planet. I'm not saying they're all born again. Only the Lord knows how many are truly His. But a third of the people on our planet profess faith in Jesus. These 12 guys multiplied the gospel into the Christian community on the planet that we have today. These ordinary people that that God has chosen to use. Now, we don't have time today to look at all of these people. So I want to focus a little bit on Peter for us to see his ordinariness, for us to see the grace of God at work in him, and for us ultimately to realize we may have misconceptions in in realizing how much God wants to use us, how much he wants to use you specifically to expand his kingdom. So let's, let's take a look a little bit at Peter, a survey, if you will, of various passages, especially highlighting the humanity of Peter the messed upness with Peter. We'll begin with, with, the, with his, his call in Matthew 16. Uh, but what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we have his confession of faith here early on. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but, my, my, but by my Father in heaven. We see the ultimacy of God here again in admission process to his school. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So a debated verse. Don't want to get into all the debates. This, this simple reading of this verse, I think, identifies Peter as the rock. Peter is the leader of the twelve. He is, he is the leader, aside from Jesus, of this group. And upon Peter and these twelve the entire Christian world has come to be through the multiplication of disciples. But let's take a look as we move a little bit further along in Matthew chapter 16 uh, uh, to, to Peter's humanity. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Not a good thing to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter had no theological concept. He didn't understand Isaiah 53 was going to apply to Jesus. He didn't understand the suffering and death on the cross that's going to come. Peter did not have it all together. Moving back a little bit to Matthew chapter 14. You're familiar with this. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith. He said, why did you doubt? So we have Peter rebuking Jesus. We have Peter, in Jesus' own words, as a man of little faith, of a man of doubting. I'm trying to show us, church, that Peter is a lot like us. He doubts. He struggles. He's even over the top, and most of us are, are, are probably not going to rebuke Jesus if we had the opportunity to spend time with him in person. Moving forward a little bit in Mark chapter 14, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Here we have, just before the the crucifixion of Jesus, the leader of the apostles denying that he knows Jesus. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, Peter did. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Jesus uses normal, ordinary people to lead his church, to expand his kingdom. We can go on. We can go on, uh, going on there in Mark 14, immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. We could go on and on looking at Peter. But to kind of summarize, Peter doesn't stay in those kinds of places. As we look in the book of Acts, we see Peter still stumbling, but Peter beginning to mature. The Lord Jesus has a long-term view of His church and of His individual disciples, including Peter. It wasn't a mistake that He chose Peter. He knew all of these things. Jesus knows all things. And yet He chose to use Him to be the leader. In John's Gospel, there is a prophecy about how Peter's life is going to end up by the Lord. He says this, I tell you the truth, when you, Peter, were younger, You dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. I believe this is an image to crucifixion. Peter, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This is an allusion to Peter dying on a cross for the sake of the gospel as a martyr. 
Peter didn't stay where he was. Continuing on here in John 21, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is what Jesus is saying to all of us this morning to follow him, not that we're all going to die on crosses, but that we are to follow him, that we would be willing to die on a cross if necessary. It was for Peter that Jesus would be our Lord, even though we stumble and fumble and doubt and deny through our life. The Lord wants us. He wanted Peter. These are the kind of people that God uses to advance his kingdom. He uses people like you, people like me. The early church uh, father, historian Eusebius, writes this in his uh, church history. He says, and at last, having come to Rome, Peter was crucified head downwards, for he had requested that he might suffer in this way. Historians debate a little bit whether Peter actually was crucified head down. The tradition is that he requested that because he was not worthy. He had come a long way from denying and doubting, and he said, I am not worthy to die the same way that the Lord died, so crucify me upside down. Historians debate whether he was crucified upside down or not. Some think that this is somewhat of a legend, but no one debates that he was a martyr and that Peter was crucified for his faith. Jesus takes a long-term view in those of us that are in his school and are called to him. And what I'm trying to say to us today is that he wants to use you, he wants to use me to expand his kingdom. Let's come back to our our text here. We're in verse 14. Just a few more uh, comments about this text. Uh, Verse 14, he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. You see that phrase, that they might be with him. The bulk of Jesus' ministry are these disciples being with Jesus and seeing his life and knowing him and loving him and learning about him. And so in our small gatherings, in our Christian friendships and relationships, the primary subject matter is the person of Christ. We want to get to know him. We want to love him. And we see this modeled in what Jesus does with the twelve throughout his earthly ministry. We see the heart of this knowing Christ to know him and to love him. We see the heart of this in the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul was a guy who had a lot of worldly things to boast in who kind of went to Ivy League schools. He notices, he says all of them are, li- are liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is, in fact, based upon Christ's faithfulness. My aim is to know him to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. And so somehow, somehow, by the grace of God, to attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is the heart of the Christian life, to know him. And this is why Jesus spent the time and energies that he had with the twelve. Finally, let's look at 14 and 15. Finish up here with these couple verses. 
So verse 14, he appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. The purpose of the 12 is to send them out to preach, for them to drive out demons, to minister. And so the training itself, the training is not itself the end, but preparatory for the mission. This isn't all about the 12 of us hanging out with Jesus. It is about the mission of making disciples. And all that Jesus did was preparing for this mission of making disciples, the church beginning with these 12 and exploding today to one-third of the population of the planet. It's just astonishing. And the good news of the gospel is that the gates of hell will, the church will always be here. Walmart may go away. You know that? Costco hasn't even come yet, right? They're not even coming. But it could come, but it could go away. But the church of Jesus will never end. And it is not only going to sustain be sustained in this life, but in the new heavens and the new earth, the church will be the bride gathered with the bridegroom for this tremendous, tremendous, never-ending celebration and worship of Jesus. The new heavens and the new earth. This is where we're headed. And our mission is to bring others and to multiply disciples, to continue the mission that Jesus gave to the 12 and to us. Let's bow our heads and pray for help to carry out that mission. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, we know that you use all types of people from all backgrounds, but we are especially mindful today of the ordinariness of the 12 that you chose. Fishermen, simple people, who were faithful and who were empowered by you to do great things and to love others, even to be willing to die for the sake of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence and hope, not in our knowledge primarily, not in our gifting primarily, but that you would give us confidence and hope in Jesus and in the gospel, and that this would be fuel for us to love others and to continue this mission that Jesus started. We pray in his name.